Hello and welcome back to the Chaos Ball Podcast, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. That was really weird inflection I just used to open the show, but I'm going to keep it in there. I did tweet this, but it's not Monday today. It is Tuesday when this is being released. I'm actually recording it on Monday because, you know, I tweeted it was Rob Manfred's, Manfred's fault. It is Rob Manfred's fault. So uh, blame him for this delay in podcasting. But I'm here. I'm ready to recap what we just saw from the Seattle baseball Mariners. They head into a homestand now against the Texas Rangers. And now we've officially played all of the teams in the AL West. The Rangers are at the top of the AL West right now, so this will be a real test. Uh, but they come off uh, taking two or three from the, from the Strohs. They swept the A's. I'll get into more of this later. But... I want to start this episode by saying, and this is relating to the Mariners a little bit, even before my my baseball reference part of the week, umpires need to have more accountability. This is going to be a little short little short little rants at the start of the show. Umpires need to have more accountability than they currently have. It's not a hot take, but so much reminds me every day why why umpires they just get to leave and not answer for any of their crimes. Like what kind of system is that? This is specifically because Jared Kelnick got ejected from a game the other day. He was mad about a call, presumably yelled something, and he got ejected behind his back, first of all. Uh, one, one of the quickest ejections I've ever seen, just in terms of Kelnick saying something, and he got ejected so fast with almost no time to make his case. And he got rejected behind his back. I've seen that before, but it was so quick that I don't even think he realized he got ejected because the umpire started talking to him and then Jared turns around. And at that point, you think Jared says more stuff and then he gets tossed and you see him and Jared would see himself get tossed. He did not. He just got tossed, presumably because he said something about uh, a call that was indeed a bad call. And this just got me thinking. You could, I could break this down, whatever, whatever. I'm not John Boy. I don't break down the, these things. But I thought it was a little unjust. I thought the umpire wielded a little bit too much power. And it's times like this where I think umpires should have to go to post-game press conferences. Hear me out. Players always have to go to post-game press conferences. I guess they don't always. I'm looking at you, Dylan Brooks, of the NBA. But they they generally, you know, you're expected to answer questions from the media after a game, win or lose. It doesn't matter what you did in that game. You get interviewed after the game. Like, we've seen great press conferences. We've seen press conferences where it was a heartbreaking loss and players don't want to be up there, but they're there because it's their job. Why is it not the umpire's job as well? They make basically the same. I mean, they they're making game game changing decisions as much as the players are making game changing plays. Like the decisions from an umpire can completely sway a game. The Jerry Kelnick ejection didn't really sway this game at all. But it begs the question, why did he get ejected? The umpire will never have to answer that. You can answer that, I guess, to like the internal review board of umpiring. I just made that up. I'm, there's something like that, I'm assuming. But he doesn't have to answer it to the general public, and I think that's wrong. I think that umpire, home plate umpire, should have to look at his umpire scorecard after the game and be like, well, 
look at that. I made some bad calls today. I'll try to improve. But then it's, he, he, you're not going to grill him about, oh, in the fourth inning, you missed this call on a sweeper outside. Can you tell me about it? No, they're just going to be like, well, clearly I made the wrong call and that's okay. It's times where it's like you, you eject a guy so quick or when you eject the guy for substance stuff, like the umpires did say why they did that, but they should be on the stand answering questions from the media. This harkens back to the Domingo Herman and Max Scherzer situation. Seemingly very similar situations. The umpire tells both of them to wash off the sticky stuff on their hands. I wrote a little substack about this, by the way. Plug, 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 plug. Go check out the substack. But they both wash whatever substance, presumably rosin and sweat, off of their hands because the umpires were like, no, 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 it's a little bit too much, a little too excessive. Come out the next inning, Domingo Herman gets to stay in the game, although he didn't really wash it off. Max Scherzer washes it off. His hands are still so sticky because the rubbing alcohol makes them sticky that he washed it off with. And Phil Cuzzy throws him out. Domingo, and, and he gets a 10-game suspension. Domingo Herman gets to pitch the rest of the game and doesn't get any such slap on the wrist. Now, the umpires of both of these games post-game should have to explain their rationale and it should be exactly like a post-game presser for a player for a coach whatever that should just have to happen I will campaign hard for this because I think part of the reason why some umpires wield so much power and love to wield power is because they don't necessarily have to answer for their actions like this you know like, I th- going through an umpire's head, imagine for a second the umpire of Jared Kelnick. I'm not, I don't know the umpire's name. Jared Kelnick says whatever he says, right? The umpire would have to think, oh man, I want to eject him, but mm, I don't want to, I don't want to answer the, the questions after the game, post game. It's going to be a tough press conference. Maybe I'll, I'll let him keep talking. I don't know. I, I, umpires need more accountability. And if post-game press conferences won't answer that or address that issue, I don't know what will. I think we should just have that one. I think it'd be funny. Umpires come back from the showers. You get to see the, the umpires post-game fits. Uh, let's let's get that going. Let's have the umpires walk into the games like players with their with their pre, pre-umpiring fits on. Then after the game, you wait for them to, to go to the showers, you know, put their post-game fit on get ready to go answer questions from the media. Some, most of this I imagine would be pretty boring, which I can see this being an issue where most of the time in an umpiring game, it's quite black and white what they got wrong. Or again, you can't just have a guy look at his scorecard and be like, yeah, I missed that call. It's not like he can convince you it was a strike when factually it was not. But in these type of situations, in the sticky stuff type of situation, in the the ejection type stuff, or just how they reversed a call, or did they do something too quickly? Did they not consider all the factors in the decision? When I don't know. I, I just think umpire press conferences would be fun. That's my point. End of rent. Umpires need more accountability. That Bottom line, that's an issue. And it's only ramped up with the sticky stuff sort of sort of shit. Uh, oh, I'm thinking also of the, the umpire who stared down Mad Bum and then Mad Bum got pissed and he threw him out like when he was checking his hands. That guy should have to sit on the stand and get berated by the media. Why did you do that to Madison Bumgarner of all people? Are you a psychopath? Are you a sociopath? Are you just stupid? I don't know. 
they should have to they should have to sit on the stand. All right, now I'm officially done. Now I'm officially done. Let's get into the baseball reference player of the week. I have a relatively quick one for you this week. Not for lack of being an amazing, amazing name and lore surrounding this player. Uh, he only played, let's see, 65 career games. He played half a season in baseball. And he put up very bad numbers. His name, John Wesley Deal. His last name is Deal, D-E-A-L, Deal. He's a first baseman, but he's better known as Snake Deal. John Wesley, Snake Deal. Snake Deal on Baseball Reference. Like a slithering little reptile. Snake Deal with an absolutely insane middle part on his hair in this photograph. He played one half of the season in 1906. He played 65 games. He batted 208. 228 and 251. It's good for a 479 OPS. Even in the uh, dead ball era, that is pretty insanely low. But it's not what Snake Deal did off the off the off the field. I can't with his name. Snake Deal. I'm naming my kid that. Snake Deal is the middle name. Uh, another another thing about his stats. 15 stolen bases in 65 games. He was a speedster. He wasn't he wasn't much with his bat. He was a one of your classic um, bad hitting speedster first baseman that you see constantly, am I right? Now, Snake Deal, his baseball, it's not the best part of him at all. He also played professional basketball in the NBL, the National Basketball League. And he apparently, and this is according to Wikipedia, which is only facts. There are no falsehoods on Wikipedia. It says he's the earliest recorded player to make use of the jump shot. So Snake Deal, a very middling baseball player for half of one season with the Cincinnati Reds in 1906, plays professional basketball and is credited with being the earliest player ever to jump while he shoots the basketball. What a legend. Snake deal, everyone. I told you it's a short one. There's not much else to him. I've I I've gone over the internet and I, I try to find fun stuff about these players. And Snake Deal there's just not there's just not much about Snake Deal. He didn't play that much baseball and his basketball career wasn't too illustrious either, besides the fact that he was a pioneer in the jump shot, so if you're watching the NBA playoffs right now and you're watching all those players jump while they shoot, just just think of Snake Deal. Snake Deal did that. That's that's GOAT status, in my opinion. The only thing I'll leave you with the Snake Deal, once you go past his baseball career, John Wesley Deal, Snake Deal, you go to Pro Basketball Encyclopedia, you got to read his basketball career. I mean, he was pretty talented, but this sentence really absolutely took me out when I read it. So, quote, Deal was one of the most creative shot makers in the early years of the pro game. He was not afraid to shoot on the run or even leave his feet while shooting. Both sacrilegious concepts at the time. That is insane. 
I would I I transport me back to 1900 and let me play in the NBL and I'm so, I'm saucing everyone up there. I'm I'm shooting on the run. I'm shooting like sky hooks. Like what are they doing back then? Just like granny shots, stationary. This is not a basketball podcast. I just found that actually like one of the greatest sentences I've ever read in terms of lore of a former baseball player. So that's not the first, but the second pro basketball player and MLB player we've had on the baseball reference player of the week with Danny Ainge being number one. Danny Ainge pales in comparison to what he's done for the game of basketball in the snake deal. And you could say a lot of people after snake deal, maybe they would have invented the jump shot. Hey, maybe they wouldn't have. Maybe without snake deal, basketball is completely different as we know it. So that was the baseball reference player of the week. That was snake deal. And now let's talk about Bryce Miller. Bryce Miller. Miller time. Miller high life. I prefer to call him the champagne of pitchers. Miller in a very, and and caption it on Twitter with a very, very poorly photoshopped Bryce Miller face on a Miller high life bottle. Uh, The Mariners and a lot of other people have elected for Miller time. And that's fine, but the Mariners also are still pushing the electric factory, and I think that's lame and stupid. So, who's to say whose marketing's really better? It's it's mine. It's mine. Right off the bat, he got called up on, I want to say, not Monday. It might have actually been Monday of last week, uh, and it it was, it was after I recorded. I usually record on Sunday, release on Monday. Uh, so this has been a week, a week's coming for this. Uh, I was, I've debated an emergency Bryce Miller pod. did not do it. You know, if I knew he was going to pitch uh, a near perfect game in his first start, maybe I would have done an emergency podcast, but I was not aware of that. I, on that said podcast, the pre Bryce Miller podcast, as it will be known as now, Spacey the Needle, go check it out if you haven't listened to it. But I said they're in a tough spot with the pitching right now because it's clear fluxing. He ain't it this year so far and they don't, they don't have enough confidence in him to really give him that five spot. But then I also said, I don't know if any of the double a pitchers are ready mainly because I thought they would have called one up by now if they thought they were ready. And that was, uh, that was not really from my brain. That was partly from my brain, partly just what I heard through various different writers slash people inside of the organization was like, they don't think the double A guys are quite there yet. And I think Bryce Miller, would he have been up with the Robbie Ray injury? No, I don't think so. Not right now. Later in the year. Sure. I, I think this is early because it necessitated it, but boy, are we lucky we get to see him this early in the year. Wow. Wow. What a, what a first two starts. So through his first two MLB starts, he's a .75 ERA, so one earned run and 12 innings pitched, with one walk and 15 strikeouts, holding opponents to 103 batting average. That sounds pretty good to me. Uh, his MLB debut, he went five and a third perfect innings, uh, which is insane. And he went up against Mason Miller, another young Miller in the league that's lighting the world on fire. And he actually... I guess Bryce Miller outdueled him, although Bryce was Mason Miller was pitching a no hitter like into the seventh, and Bryce was only pitching a perfect game to the sixth, and then got it blown up. So really, who was better? Bryce Miller was, but he went six innings, two hits, one run, ten strikeouts in his debut, which is 
uh, it's not unprecedented territory, but it is historically good for a debut. Now, if you remember back in uh, in 2010, Steven Strasburg struck out 14 in his debut, which I think is a unanimous best debut of all time in the major leagues. But with his, he retired the first 15 batters he faced. He carries the perfect game into the sixth, and of course, Tony Kemp, Tony freaking Kemp broke it up, of course. But he set a, re- a record, Mariners record, for most strikeouts in a Major League debut, surpassing Enrique Romo on his debut in 1977, which was the Mariners' second ever game as a franchise, which is a fun little fact. Shout out to Mariners PR for that one. But he also became the third pitcher in MLB history to record, to record 10-plus strikeouts with no walks in a debut, joining aforementioned Steven Strasburg and also Johnny Cueto in 08. Did the same thing. Not quite as good as Strasburg, but that's rare company for a debut. Uh, and it's not, you can't really point to Oakland's lineup as like, oh, he was doing it against Oakland. Yeah. Oakland's lineup is not the best in the league, but it's not the worst in the league. It, at, at that point in time, I, I tweeted about this in terms of OPS plus their lineup was better than the guardians, the Yankees, the Mariners. And I think like, like the one or two other teams, prominently prominent teams, Oakland, that's how bad Oakland's pitching staff is. I think their record, you look at their record and you assume the whole team is bad. It's true, but the pitching is so, so bad that it's making their offense, which is definitely bottom third of the league, but edging close to the top of the bottom third in the league. You know what I mean? And he blanked them. And then the Mariners return home versus the Houston Astros. The first series against the Astros this year, the series is tied 1-1. to They lost in the City Connect jerseys debut with Luis Castillo on the bump, which is a bad omen for those jerseys. They give Bryce Miller the ball on Sunday in the cream jerseys at the rubber match of the series, in which it doesn't feel like a must-win series, but it would be nice. And they send Bryce Miller out there. What does he do? He goes six innings, two hits, one walk, five strikeouts. Mows him down, absolutely shoves, looks amazing, threw his fastball 70% of the time. And for good reason. That fastball is unique. That fastball is different. That fastball is new. We knew coming up, and this is part of his breakout season last year, it it wasn't his secondary stuff. It was his fastball. He lives and dies by the fastball, similar to Logan Gilbert, but they're very different fastballs. Uh, what actually surprised me was how good his secondary stuff looked in the bigs. I know he he's come a long way with his slider. Like last year's slider fastball was working down there in Double A, but I still know like scout grades and what they thought of him was very much fastball. And he he threw more fastballs in his second start than his first start. He put more of a secondary pitch show on in his first start. And I will mention that one cha- backwards K changeup he had late in the game in his first start. Phew, that was that was so nasty. But his fastball, his fastball, his fastball, his fastball. If you haven't heard it by now, it's different. It's a very different fastball. And I don't know, I'm not a pitching expert, but his fastball just doesn't drop. It doesn't drop through the zone. So if you watch it, it's it's a really fast fastball. He's a high-velocity pitcher, but in this day and age, a prospect coming up averaging 96 on his fastball, averaging like sitting 95 to 97, that's not super significant anymore. That doesn't especially you know get 
get the rocks off for the MLB right now. That's like kind of commonplace in today's game to have a young pitcher throwing that hard. But the way it carries through the zone, you can tell. He blew the fastball, a fastball by Jordan yesterday at 97. That's a fast fastball. I've seen Jordan crank 97 fastballs. I've seen him hit them really hard. It's different because of the spin. It is one of the more spinny fastballs in the league. He's currently, through two starts only, very small sample, but he's in the 97th percentile in fastball spin in the league. He's averaged what would be leading the league in average fastball RPMs. He's just not qualified. Otherwise, he would be leading the league. And it doesn't drop. So the amount of spin he gets on the fastball, normally fastballs drop a little bit because it's hard to just throw a 97-mile-an-hour fastball that doesn't drop a little bit because of gravity, you know? But his spin on it and his mechanics and whatever he does with this ball, it rises. It it drops the lowest amount in the league right now. I, I will... I, did tweet, I, I'm going to tweet tonight before tonight's game, a graphic from StatCast from Baseball Savant that plots uh, vertical movement versus average and, and horizontal movement versus average for, for fastballs this year. Right now, Bryce Miller, number one in vertical movement versus average. It just stays and rises through the zone because of the spin rate. And so he's not throwing the hardest fastball from a starter, but he's throwing the fastball that spins the most. And that's why it's so unique. And that's why it's so different for these hitters to try to to pick up because they're expecting it to drop a little bit more into the zone potentially. But no, it just keeps going because it's spinning so fast. It's awesome. It's awesome. You don't need to be a nerd about baseball to watch him and be like, oh, that fastball is different. It just looks different the way it carries through the zone. And what a treat the first two starts have been. Can't wait to watch him the rest of the year. I know he's not going to put up a .75 ERA for the rest of the year. And this happens always with young hitters or young pitchers. They get some quality at-bats or quality starts, quality innings under their belt, and then people start to figure him out. The more and more data, the more and more innings he throws, the more and more teams will know how to attack him. And that is where the secondary stuff will have to come in because guys will start to learn how to hit his fastball a bit better, but that doesn't matter because it's so good. And if he can even spin those secondaries at an average clip, he's going to be fine this year and he'll work on it. We're not right now. He's slotted in as not starter number five. And if he can just be better than Chris Flexen, which uh, spoiler alert, I think he is better than Chris Flexen. Then that's perfect. That's exactly what the Mariners need right now. And it's just a surprise because, again, it seemed kind of like a a desperate move, even though though he was definitely MLB ready. It still seemed kind of like, oh, it's still a little early in the year. But look what he's doing, man. Like, what? A first two starts. I think his next start, who will it be against? It'll be this week, later in the week. Oh, the Tigers. They're actually playing pretty good ball. But I, it's become appointment viewing now. I love watching him pitch. I love watching his fastball. And he's not, he's, why it's interesting to me too, he's not a very big pitcher. Like in terms of pitchers, he's not very big. He's not very tall. I think, let me look it up right now, real quick. I want to say he's like 6'1. He's 6'2, so that's not even that tall. 
it's something with the mechanics that makes his fastball spin that much. Because it's not just that he's huge. It's not just that he lifts a bunch of weights and is like a, has a six six frame and throws a gas fastball. Spencer Strider is not a very tall man, but you can see where his power comes from. He's got the biggest legs in the league. Bryce Miller doesn't have that. He's a relatively he's an athletically built six two pitcher with a, a flaming fastball like that. So it comes down to mechanics and I guess how he releases the ball. Again, I'm not a I'm not a mechanics expert, so there's something there about why he spins that fastball so well. It's also just a very vertical arm slot, so in terms of, you know, going to get more nerdy, in terms of pitch tunneling, if he gets that, that downward movement on the slider with a rising fastball that he throws with that arm angle, that's devastating. Devastating. I'm just excited. I love this organization. The past, this whole regime, the Jerry DePoto regime, he showed the past four years, the pitching development that they can do is really good. It's top tier. Like they they have just been producing guys like this. Double A has been just a lab. It's been the Jerry Depoto pitching lab down over there in Arkansas. I don't know what they're feeding these kids, but it's like right now you got Brian Wu and Prelander Baroa out there. And then you got like Taylor Dollard in the wings. Emerson Hancock's down in double A too. The it's stacked. Stacked pitching coupled with finding these cheap relievers like Spire Topa and making them into very, very solid contributors in the bullpen. And this team's problem will likely never be pitching as long as this organization can keep doing this. And they've proved that they can. They've proved that now we have more of a track record for this org. They've proved they can just churn out and develop good pitching arms in the minors, and they'll they'll stick in the at the major league level. And that's awesome. The hitters... You know, more hit or miss. The verdict's still out. But no, the pitching, like, there should be no doubts about this organization and how they identify pitching talent, how they coach pitching talent, how they develop pitching talent. There should be no, no questions about that anymore. They're one of the elite teams in the bigs at creating pitcher talent. And it's awesome. It's awesome to be a part and watch it. And now I'm just thinking, with Bryce Miller up in the bigs, the staff is crazy. It's not crowded, but as I mentioned, Brian Wu, Prelander Broa, who I think will be a very good relief pitcher in his career. I don't see him sticking as a starter. Brian Wu, I do see as a starter. And then there's Emerson Hancock down there, all so talented. When are we going to see them pitch? This year? Like, will they stick it out in Arkansas? Will they be traded at the deadline? I'm willing to bet one of those three will be traded at the deadline, because at this point... Their value is really high. It's only rising as they continue to pitch well. And if the Mariners choose to need to supplement their offense a little bit more, you have three right now viable young team-controlled pitchers for the next five to seven years at the bigs with Robbie Ray still signed long-term. Maybe one of those guys gets traded just because the club doesn't necessarily need them right now. I mean, they already did it the past couple years. Like Levi Stout... And Brandon Williamson and Adam Mako have all left the organization for better players at the big league level. And it's it's panned out right now. That's part of why I also love that they can just produce top pitching talent. Because some teams just have a very hard time doing that. And if the Mariners can keep doing it and flipping those guys for assets and keeping some of them around to to pitch in the majors for, for the Mariners, it's just great. It's a great system they've got going. 
And that was Bryce Miller. Just excited to keep watching him pitch. That fastball is insane. And if you didn't know, it's if you didn't know, now you know. Go tell your friends if you bring up Bryce Miller. Cool fact, best spinning fastball in baseball. He averages the most RPMs on that thing. And it doesn't drop. It rises through the zone. Very weird. Very unique. Very awesome. So that was Bryce Miller. Now let's talk about the Mariners as a whole. So the Mariners, they had a good week that didn't feel like a great week. They swept the A's, but I think there was a consensus on Twitter that that might have just been like the worst sweep I've ever seen. Personally, it might have been the worst sweep I've ever seen. I mean, they win 2-1, 7-2, and 5-3. 7-2 is only because of the the inning late where they tacked on, what, five extra runs in the 10th to win that game. They came out of the gate. They, well, they, they went into that series struggling on offense, and they continued the whole series. Julio was struggling. Ty is struggling. Teoscar wasn't doing anything. Gino wasn't doing anything. Kelnick was coming back down to earth. The only people hitting were like J.P. Crawford and Jose Caballero. God bless them, but... And A.J. Pollock had a good series as well. But it was weird to watch the bottom of the order produce while the top of the order flailed. Uh, pops out, hard ground outs, easy, easy, stupid strikeouts. Also just getting a little unlucky when they actually do hit the ball hard. And that's baseball, man. Baseball's stupid. But they swept the A's, and I, I dubbed it the week before as the most important series of the year to this point. And I'm so glad they swept them because at the end of the day, it didn't feel super satisfying, but on the record, it's fantastic. They're at 500 now because they took two or three from the Astros as well because they, they swept the A's. They almost didn't. They entertained not. They made the A's pitching staff look very competent from a pitching staff that has historically been one of the top 10 worst ever in the history of baseball for the month of April to start the year. So it was impressive that they they did that, but also ended up winning. Very Mariners-like, very not normal. So it's actually kind of felt similar to what I normally experience as a Mariners fan, but the pitching was excellent. They got quality starts from Kirby Gilbert, Bryce Miller all in a row, which is amazing. And they come out of Oakland with three wins. And whatever, we don't have to talk about that anymore. Put it behind us. That didn't happen. We swept them in fantastic fashion and no one is struggling offensively they come back home to take two or three from the astros they lost in the city connects on the friday they they won on saturday they won on sunday which on sunday it was mother's day gino grigio wine tumbler night mother's day is next week but they're out of town gino grigio wine tumbler night you don't lose games on gino grigio wine tumbler night and they didn't. They took care of business 3-1 to one on top of the Bryce Miller quality start that I mentioned before. And boy, did it feel good to take 2-3 or three from this Astros team. And now the Mariners are at 17-17. and 17. They're tied with the Astros. And they have the Texas Rangers, the division-leading Texas Rangers coming to town. It's still May. And they're not really that many games back. But this feels like a pivotal series to, to, to win. If they win against the A's, the Astros, and the Rangers three in a row, 
home like that is a huge boost of confidence going into April or not going to April, ugh, going into the rest of this month. They get to play the A's again later this month, which is which is awesome. But to start the month with three divisional opponents and win two of three of those series so far is huge. And it really will be a test against these Rangers. They're playing great baseball. But hopefully the Marine layer can keep them in check, even though they turn their ballpark into a pitcher's paradise down there. Let's not talk about the future. Last week, again, they won, they've won they won six of seven, and there's still like a bad taste in our mouth because Julio, God bless him, he had a home run last night. He hit an absolute dick shot last night in the game, like 454 feet. That was like the first good thing he's done at the plate in two weeks. He is slumping. Ty France is starting to break out of his slump. It's not like we're I'm not I'm not necessarily worried about these guys from a performance standpoint. Julio a little bit because of his back and I, I as a as a relatively young, similarly aged man as Julio Rodriguez with lower back problems myself, I get it. I too am an elite athlete. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, that's like the only partial worry for Julio. Otherwise, I do think he's just slumping. He's still hitting the ball hard. I think he is a little. He he's been a little Vladdy this year of last year. Vladdy this year finally started to elevate the baseball and look what he's doing. And Julio sometimes it's just he hits the hardest ground balls ever. And sometimes you know if you elevate that, that thing's going really far. But I'm not super worried about Julio. Again, Ty France is coming back the past couple games and has, has looked more Ty France-like at the plate. He was slumping hard. Hard. Very, very awful end to the month for Ty France. But he's back. So, so far in May, the league leader in OPS is A.J. Pollock. He's played three games, but he is slashing 375, 444, and... 1250 slugging in those three games because he has two home runs. Jose Caballero has a thousand OPS in May so far in four games. Taylor Trammell has played six games, 14 plate appearances, has a 929 OPS so far in May. And then Ty France has a 782 OPS in May in six games, which is encouraging. He's the whole month so far, he's looked good. He's looked like very Ty France, similar Ty France. So I think he has definitely busted out of his slump. Eugenio has looked better a little bit as well. Still not a whole lot of, of power out of Eugenio this month. He has one home run, but uh, the guy that's really important right now is Colton Wong. He's he's slashing 778 in the month of May and, and looking good up there at the plate. He had a bases clearing double the other night. That was really clutch. He looks like a big league player. He doesn't look like the worst guy in the league. At the plate, like what a treat! And this tweet was from Mayor's PR before uh, last night's game. It was after the Astros game on the sixth with that um, that double that I mentioned. But his last seven games, this was before, so not including Sunday. He was hitting 417 with two doubles, five RBIs, two walks, and a 962 OPS. So he's looked so so much better, miles miles better than he did for the first month and it's funny so if you go to uh baseball reference or stat head or what have you on on the reference websites if you take a split like i'm looking at the month of may for all of our hitters right now one first of all before i go any further julio is hitting 095 so far in the month of may not great uh they give you s ops plus and t 
OPS Plus. Now, T OPS Plus is interesting because it gives you their OPS relative to their to that player's total OPS. So it's like what percentage of their OPS this year has this split given us? And so I'm going to tell you right now. So 100 would be would be average, league average, OPS Plus. Colton Wong in the month of May, his T OPS Plus is 230. So 230 of his OPS Plus has come in May, and his OPS Plus on the whole on the season is 40. So that just tells you how how awful, awful he was to start the year. He's still got a long way to go to be even considered league average with his stats, but it's been encouraging. It's been very encouraging. The interesting thing for me is he plays second base. You know who else plays second base? Jose Caballero, baby. Jose Caballero. I love this dude. He's got edge. He plays the game just really like fun, but not too much fun. You know what I mean? Like he clearly enjoys playing baseball, but he has this he has this edge about him that I really like. And also he's just been playing really good ball. He's been putting in really good at bats at the play. He's been very pesky up there, choosing his spots, picking his pitches, been solid in the field, just been a good good vibes all around from this guy. And it's been awesome to see, and he, he seems like he's going to stick around at the club if he's hitting like this. He just taking, like, I don't know if he can play the outfield, but taking Sam Haggerty's place, I mean, Haggerty's only on the team at this point because he can play outfield. If you have Caballero, Wong, and JP as your three middle infielders, like, having a fourth is good, but Haggerty's value comes, I mean, from his speed, but also he can play the outfield spots. And when Dylan Moore comes back, I don't see Haggerty on this team right now. He's looks so lost at the plate, and I'm not ready to give up on him, but he might just need an extended stint down in AAA for a little bit to get his shit right because he looks awful. He looks terrible. It might be his injury. It might not. I just think he needs extended time in AAA right now to get it right. Uh, but Caballero has been awesome, man. Caballero has been fantastic. So that is just amazing. That's just something that totally unexpected that's been happening this year that I hope continues. And I like his vibes a lot. So keep it up, Jose Caballero. Big fan. Big, big fan. And now, still, I would like to address the offense. I'd like to address the offense. The vibes are better. The offense has been a little bit better, like against the Astros. But after the A's series, before the A's series, during the A's series, all of last week, it was just such a drag to watch this offense. And everyone likes pointing fingers, you know. Whose fault is it, this offense? We've talked about the offense all year. It's been subpar all year. Last year, it seemed to... Last year, last week, it was abysmal because the top half of the lineup, the guys who theoretically you're like, oh, y'all will will support the team even when the bad hitters are hitting badly like we expect them to. No, they were also hitting terribly. Everyone was hitting so bad. First of all, I think it's great to remind ourselves that baseball is really stupid sometimes. Sometimes baseball is just dumb. And sometimes your best players just don't get a hit for a whole week. You know, it just happens. That's baseball. But I'm not, and I'm not defending, I'm not going to defend Jerry DePoto and Justin Hollander and the rest of the front office. I am on record criticizing their lack of meaningful offseason moves. But like at the moment last week and even right now, with some of their best guys coming out of a slump, hopefully for Julio, he's coming out of this slump, but like Ty France has come out of the slump. Colton Wong has steered himself out of this slump. 
uh, Eugenio a little bit as well. Even AJ Pollock didn't have a very good start to the season and, and picked up last last uh, series against the A's, which was helpful. But like some of these, so like Ty France and Julio specifically just looked like they completely forgot how to hit. Like straight up, they forgot how to hit a baseball. Like the top of the order all last week just looked lost. Just so lost at the plate. And that, I don't really think, falls on the front office. That just, partially, that's just sometimes baseball. But also, there should be more blame. And this can fall to the front office, too, for how they structure their organization. But the hitting coaches. Are the hitting coaches at fault here? Even last year, the the offense probably could have been better. And they got a lot out of their, their top guys. And so far this season, they've gotten some good production out of their top guys on a whole. I mean, it's only May, but... Like last week, everyone was calling for for whoever's job, Scott's, Jerry DePoto's. And I think sometimes, dude, just forget how to hit and just remember it a week later. Like Ty France looked like a little, little baby up there at the plate last week. Like a little, little kid swinging a large bat way too big for him. He couldn't do shit at the plate. Looked like he had never swung a baseball. Well, no. Looked like he had never faced major league pitching before. Same with Julio. Julio looked juvenile last week, just just so bad at the plate. Something we are, you know, not accustomed to seeing from him. It looked more like last April when he was a he was a rookie up in April and not getting the right calls and, and striking out a lot. It, it, it's looked like that. It's just sometimes guys just forget how to hit. That being said, last week Scott Scott and still right now. Which some people fault him for, some people don't. I'm in the camp of, eh, depends on how I'm feeling. But I wish Scott played with the lineup a little bit more. Because last week, it was clear Ty France wasn't going to give you anything at the plate. Every game, for some reason. Julio as well. Gino was not hitting well. Teoscar was not hitting well. Why not throw Jose Caballero and JP at 1-2? and two If they're just on fire. And they were. They continued to hit really well, despite hitting at the bottom of the order. And in the grand scheme of things... If they set the table for the middle of the order of Ty France and Julio and they were still awful, that doesn't get you anywhere. But I don't know. I, I just wish sometimes Scott would mix it up. And it's not only on Scott. I think the front office has a lot to say and the other coaches have a lot to say about lineups and stuff. As a whole, I sometimes wish they would just go with the hot hand. Like if JP's hitting really well, hit him leadoff. If Jose Caballero is, is hitting the cover off the ball like he is right now, put him at the two spot. Give Julio, give Julio a little, he don't have to hit him first. You don't necessarily have to do that. You know, it'd be fun to not sometimes. Like, if I got the lineup card notification from MLB at bat, and it was Jose Caballero, one, that'd be sick. I'd be so excited. But no, it just doesn't happen. I get it. I get why they don't do it. I just sometimes wish they would. But there was just a lot of blame thrown around last, last week, and... You know, it was just frustration because it was just our best hitters going up there and we knew they weren't going to give us anything competitive. It was non-competitive competitive at bats, lack of situational hitting. Like, I don't know what percentage of blame you can put on the front office or, like, the coaching staff for that when it's been the best hitters just absolutely shitting themselves out there at the plate definite blame on the hitting coaches but also i don't know sometimes we're just gonna have those weeks every baseball team sometimes has those weeks where the hitters just forget how to hit sometimes unless you have like a generational offense and it's tough when 
when you when a team who is built on our best bats need to hit well in order to win games because our pitching staff will give us the opportunity to win them if our best bats can help us win them. A team that's built like that, less so than like a team like the Rays who will get contributions up and down the lineup all year probably. It's it's tougher when your best guys go through a slump when you're way more reliant on them. And that's not rocket science. That's just tough. That's just tough tough scenes, tough sledding sometimes. But that is all I want to say about last week. At the end of the day, they've won six of seven. They took a sweep in Oakland. They took two of three from the Astros. And they're at 500 again. And going into now the middle of, of this month, playing the Rangers, we'll see how they come out of it. I, I hope they can take another series victory against the Rangers at home. These are the value games for the Mariners too, which I love that they're doing. So crowd should be heavier than normal for a, a Monday, Tuesday, or a, uh, yeah, no, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday series should be a little bit more, which is awesome. Uh, I'm looking forward to it, to playing the Rangers and seeing what they can bring to Seattle because they've been quite good this year to start the year. They've been quite good. They've looked like a real contender so far, and we'll have to see how legit it is. And if Julio, hopefully he had a home run last night, he looked better at the plate, hopefully that was the game that's like, okay, slump over. Now I'm going to hit five home runs in three games against the Rangers at home. Let's do that, Julio. Let's do that, huh? But that is it for this podcast. One thing I want to say before I go, I talked about Ila Jimenez potentially getting traded to the Mariners at the deadline. And a couple days ago, he got an appendicitis and had an appendectomy and is out for like six weeks. So I cursed him. No, I didn't. I didn't curse him. Eloy is cursed. Eloy has has been cursed for a long time now, and it sucks for the man. I just thought it was interesting. I I talk about him and he's out. So maybe I can use those powers for good. Who's who's someone? There's not many players in the league I I wish ill will against. Marcelo Zuna though. He's he's a sicko. He's a domestic abuser. Uh, the Mariners should trade for him. Am I right, Universe? Trade for Marcelo Zunas at Seattle Mariners. If he gets hurt next week, credit me. Credit me for that. Again, I will not wish ill will on many Major League players, but if you are a domestic abuser, I certainly will. I'm sorry. Those are the rules. And that is where I'll leave you on this episode on a very, very high note. Uh, I'm going to say one more thing before I go. Snake deal. Always remember Snake Deal. Never let Snake Deal leave your hearts. Because he's important to the game of basketball. Almost as important as he is to my podcast and the Baseball Reference Player of the Week. Which is a transcendent award that I wish I could hand out to these players. But unfortunately, all of them were born in the 1800s and they've all died. So maybe I'll choose one that's more current and alive. And I can give them the award in person. So next week's Big League Player of the Week... Big League Player of the Week, Baseball Reference Player of the Week, is Jared Kelnick, and now he legally has to come on my podcast. So thank you, thank you. Appreciate listening thus far. No podcast next week. I'm busy next week. I'm out of town next week. There will be no podcast. So I will see you in two weeks, and we'll see where the Mariners end up in two weeks. But until then, I wish you a hearty Go Mariners.